You know, I've often wondered, how can a nation of intellectuals, politicians, and educators that in many respects have no belief in God give thanks on Thanksgiving Day? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Who do you give thanks to if you don't believe in a creator God on Thanksgiving Day? It's a question I've pondered of recent years. You know, thinking about this actually this past week, I, I came across an article, a seven-year-old article, in fact, from the Atlantic Magazine, and it was entitled Gratitude Without God. Gratitude Without God by uh, Emma Green. And in the article, the author basically asked the same fundamental question because it was written late November of 2014. Now, she begins this article called Gratitude Without God by talking about the good effects of gratitude and how important it is and, 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 uh, and how it, it really brings about some very positive effects with human beings. But then she addresses the stark contrast between the values and beliefs of our forefathers in this country 150 plus years ago when, when the earlier Thanksgivings were really established as a national holiday and our culture today. It's kind of a brave uh, topic for her to tackle in this, in this article. I want to read a little bit from it. I think you'll find it interesting. She states in the, uh, in the article, but gratitude isn't just an emotion. It's also a value. In most cultures, but especially in America around Thanksgiving time, being grateful is seen as a virtue. The entire country stops working and gathers together because being thankful is something we should do. But why, really, she asks, why? In the American context, thankfulness is a genuine puzzle of cultural inputs, as she said. It's not political. The word blessed is neither in the Constitution or in the Federalist Papers, but it is nationalistic in some sense. Thanksgiving was created by Abraham Lincoln in 1863 in the midst of a civil war and a bid to restore, quote, the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union in the United States. But then she continues and kind of gets to the core of the point. She said, but in 1863, America was a different kind of Christian nation than it is now. The country is far more religiously diverse. Yes, my son-in-law and I did uh, team up on this topic. <laughs> no, we didn't really. <laughs> but she said the country is far more religiously diverse and culturally secular than it was when Thanksgiving was founded. Although 90% of people in the U.S. believe in, quote, God or a universal spirit, end quote, Faith doesn't have much bearing on the way Thanksgiving is talked about in public life, from butterball commercials to Macy's parade. Gratitude is the animus of those secular rituals, but the object of the gratitude is unclear. In other words, who am I thankful for? Who am I thankful to? If people aren't thanking God, who are they thanking? You can thank your grandma for making delicious pie, but who do you thank for the general circumstances in your life? She then says, this is why secular Thanksgiving-flavored gratitude seems so fuzzy to me. Religions from Christianity to Hinduism to Wicca all emphasize the importance of thankfulness, especially in the form of prayer. This is because they rely on the premise of an other, in other words, an other being, some sort of non-human being that has some sort of control or influence in the world who you can thank for the world and the good things in it. It was a very interesting article. It's kind of atypical of the Atlantic Magazine as it relates to a subject on religion. But it was very sad when you think about it. When you think about the, the, and this was seven years ago. As we emerge from Thanksgiving holiday in this country and seeing the words of Thanksgiving spelled out you know, plastered over everything from Walmart sales to NFL football, we as God's people should ask, who and what is the object of our gratitude as Christians? And how important is it for Christians to be grateful anyway? Today, brethren, what I want to do is to address that question and show that in the bigger picture, the mindset of gratitude is far more important to our achieving our calling and actually being in the family of God than sometimes we give it credit for. You know, it's interesting when you look at the scripture, the subject of thanksgiving and gratitude is really riddled through the word of God. 
And when God began dealing with the nation of Israel and gave them instructions on their worship of him, you find one of the things that he gave to them as an option, and it really was, was what was called the thank offering. Now in Leviticus chapter 7, we find many of these offerings that were a part of the Levitical system uh, described in great detail for the nation of Israel. There were a variety of offerings, of course, given, including the trespass or sin offering, but there were also thank offerings given. In Leviticus 7, beginning in verse 11, I just want to read a few verses here to, to at least address the fact that that did exist. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer unto the eternal. And if he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mingled with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour and fried. Now I bring this thank offering up to begin the message today because it was the only type of offering made in the temple of Israel that was actually self-generated by the person who made it. It was totally voluntary. It wasn't incumbent upon anyone that must do it. It had to come from the heart, in other words. And of course, that fact will prove significant surrounding the issue of thankfulness and gratitude as we look at it in Scripture. In Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, if you'll turn there, now we know that the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans was indeed just that, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And as was the case with all of the congregations that are a part of the New Testament canon, at least of Paul's epistles, each one of these recipients of Paul's letters was unique, whether it was to a congregation in, in Corinth, or in this particular case in Rome, or whether it was congregations in the region of Galatia in Asia Minor, that they had a target. In other words, there was an audience that he was speaking to. And when he wrote to the brethren at Rome, they, clearly he uh, understood the context of the culture that they lived in and, and what they had to deal with. And we know that in Romans chapter 1, he begins talking about that world that they live in. And it wasn't a very pleasant world, and it was very different from the, uh, uh, the, the godly world that they were called into as a, as a part of the church. But verse 20 of, of Romans chapter 1 is a very well-known verse to us all, because we often will refer to Romans 1 and verse 20 as it relates to our ability to to prove and to reinforce the fact that there is a God. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it's one of the scriptures that you can turn to that actually gives you a method to prove that God exists. You know, I've often mentioned in a class that I teach at Foundation Institute uh, in this regard, and that is that, you know, sometimes people think when we're in the church, young people may think uh, in particular, very young people, that, well, if you want to prove that God exists, well, give me the Bible, I'll, I'll show you that God exists. And, of course, they'll start quoting God. That means he exists. Of course, like I've tried to help, uh, help the students understand, you, you don't prove that God exists to somebody who doesn't believe that God exists by telling him that the Bible tells you that he exists, if you understand that point. You've got to start with something more basic than that. The assumption that a person doesn't even know that this is the word of God. But Romans 1 and verse 20 is one of those places where God gives to his people and really to all of mankind such as God actually says they're without excuse, in fact, about his existence. Notice what it says in verse 20. Romans 1 it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Now that seems like an oxymoronic statement, doesn't it? The invisible things are seen. Well, it, it, you know, again, Paul's talking about uh, an unbelieving world that the brethren at Rome were a part of. They, they, they came out of and were called out of a world that didn't believe at least the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, they they worshipped their, their very emperors. And, and of course, the, the life and lifestyle that was reinforced in the Roman culture was horrific. And the members knew that. And I would suspect that some of the members in the early church, they were felt a bit intimidated about the culture that they lived in. But Paul was trying to encourage them in much of what he had to say and to help them appreciate the, the uniqueness of them as a church of God and as their calling. But he says, he says here, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. How? Being understood by the things that are made. 
is a very simple statement, but one that really focuses on the fact that if, if, if an individual or a group of individuals will take a, a measured, patient, objective view of the created order in this world, whether you're talking about just the human beings that we are, or whether you're talking about uh, the animal world, whether you're talking about uh, the, the, you know, the cell and, and DNA and the information within it, or the universe itself, if you take an objective look at it, what does God say about that? Well, Paul told them in uh, the church at Rome in verse, uh, chapter uh, 1 and verse 20, he said, even his eternal power and Godhead, you can come to that conclusion that there has to be a, a creator. And what does he say after that? So that they, and he was talking about the unbelieving culture that they came out of, are without excuse. They're without excuse. Now, there are thousands and millions of people that would debate that, but those, most of them aren't looking at it objectively. There are precious few uh, scientists and professionals that are, have done that, and, and they are uh, called individuals that believe in um, ID or intelligent design. Now, this isn't a sermon about intelligent design, but it does kind of speak to what Paul was saying here about the world that they lived in. And he didn't want them to be intimidated by that. But how is it, though, that they lost that understanding of, of, of recognizing the Creator? We often stop at verse 20 in Romans 1 because it is a profound point. But let's go on and read verse 21 because the next verse begins with the phrase, because that. So there's a connection between what is stated in verse uh, 20 and verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. And notice the next statement, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, the, this particular chapter goes on to describe some pretty bizarre and horrific uh, lifestyles and choices that the, the, the world around them made. But, he, but the interesting thing here is he, he, he really focused on the fact that people became unthankful. There was something about their connection with their creator and gratitude and, 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 and thankfulness that, that caused a disconnect in their belief and understanding of where they came from. Paul recognized that one of the essential aspects of our acknowledging God, his existence, his power, his glory, and our faith in him is a human being's gratitude their thankfulness. It is evidence of our faith in him, without which, as he goes on to explain, one's heart can become darkened. They lose an understanding of where they came from. It's significant because we know that deep gratitude begins when you think about gratitude, even when, if you're thanking your grandmother for all the wonderful meals she's cooked for you, you think of it even on a human basis. Gratitude begins by requiring humility and dependence. Humility and dependence and seeing oneself as the creator sees the person. Now in 2 Timothy chapter three, so we're gonna maybe not switch gears on who is the author here because it is the apostle Paul, but he's writing here to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter three, he's encouraging Timothy about his understanding of the world that they lived in. And of course, sometimes it's hard to delineate between what the Apostle Paul was referring to in some of these statements he made to, the, to Timothy and to the church at Thess, uh, Thessalonica uh, in terms of was he talking about the end times that he thought was going to come about in their lifetime or so many years down the road. But he does make the point that in the last days, in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 3, he tells Timothy, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. And then inserted in there is unthankful and unholy. Once again, this issue of gratitude, and when you think about what, what, what real gratitude requires of a person, if you really are thankful for something and you're thankful to someone for it, uh, there, there's something about the way that we feel about ourselves and are dependent upon that being or that person, whether it's mom, dad, grandma, or in this particular instance, God. A dependence that is gone, obviously, from the culture that would exist in the last days. 
Paul cites the ungrateful mindset as defining, at least in part, perilous times. Now, is, is the Apostle Paul just talking about etiquette? about you teaching little Johnny or little Sally to be sure that after he has dinner at grandma's house that he goes up to grandma and says, thank you, grandma, for the green bean casserole <laughs> or thank you for the apple pie. I, mean, I, I know that I was told by my parents on more than one occasion to thank someone, some other relative or neighbor for something I received or, or something I ate or for being invited to dinner. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure many of you were encouraged to do that. And I'm not suggesting that all of little Dougie's uh, thank yous were insincere, but I suspect some of them I said because I had to. <laughs> I was told to do it, you know, by, because that was good etiquette. When you, somebody invites you for dinner, you thank them for it. Uh, and it is good etiquette. But is that all Paul's talking about here is an etiquette issue, in the, you know, in terms of the time of the end or in terms of people having their hearts darkened? No, I, I don't think he's talking about etiquette. He's talking about something that goes far beyond that. But what has mankind learned about the subject of gratitude and thankfulness and appreciation? Like many things, mankind has begun to study uh, human behavior more in the last 20 or 30 years, and even, even more so as they study it not just from a behavioral perspective, but neurological, in fact. And uh, in other words, what, what changes up here in the, in the brain uh, when certain behaviors take place? Well, there have been many studies that have been done, and you've probably all read articles in the Dallas Morning News and other, other publications over the years about the subject of gratitude and how good that it is. And it's true. Many, many, many uh, books have been written. Uh, one book that I read several years ago entitled Thanks, How the Science of Gratitude Can Make You Happier, uh, made, made reference to a number of issues that uh, uh, scientists, social scientists have actually come to see about gratitude and about we human beings and, and why it's so difficult sometimes. But it is true that an increasing number of psychologists and neurologists, experts have done research on the subject of thankfulness and gratitude, and they claim that living a life of gratitude and thankfulness will diminish, if not eliminate, depression in the lives of some people, believe it or not. Reduction of elimination of suicide, increase happiness, improve success in one's marriage, and improve one's health through diminished stress. Sounds like a good thing to do, doesn't it? You know, there are, <laughs> there are medications out there that will claim to do some of that temporarily, give the illusion of it for a while anyway, and sometimes people have to take medication in severe cases of certain uh, mental health issues. But my point is simply this, that for all of the uh, time and effort that's been put into uh, the research that's been done over the years, they've come to understand some remarkable things about gratitude, about thankfulness, when it's really there inside a human being. I want to read just one, one or two quotes from this particular book that I read some years ago. And it's on the subject of the law of habituation. Now, habituation is just a fancy word for something being habitual, something you do all the time. But page 41 of this book entitled Thanks, it says, we, speaking of we in the United States, arguably live in the most affluent nation and society history has ever known. But people are less happy. Studies show that the misery index of depression and suicide have risen in recent years in this country. That was true 10 years ago, and it has continued to be true today. One reason that material blessings do not increase happiness is because of what's called adaptation. Adaptation. As humans, we have the amazing ability to adapt to ongoing circumstances whether they be more difficult circumstances that we eventually will adapt to. And that, that's the kind we don't want to adapt to. <laughs> we, we may have to sometimes. Or the abundance side of it. We human beings get used to what we have. And if it's affluence, we get used to it. And it becomes the baseline of expectation of our lives. So when, when, when someone uh, puts in front of you the opportunity to uh, go and serve at one of the church's youth camps in, in Africa, and then you would go on to explain to them, well, you know, you're, here's your sleeping situation, uh, here's your, your bathing circumstances, here are the limitations there, and, uh, and, all, and all of a sudden, some, not, not all, some will say, you know what, uh, I think, I don't think I'm going to, I'm interested in that right now. You know, it's, uh, or, or camping, you know, I won't ask how many of you in this room used to camp when you were first married, but now the wife has told the husband, camping's done, you know, our camping is going to be Holiday Inn or better. 
from here on out. Um, Mr. Taylor, Britt Taylor's got a few good stories to tell you about camping with his wife Donna. They're, they're hilarious, and they're all true. But, uh, but my point is, is that we human beings tend to have a baseline of expectation, whether it's those kind of circumstances or our, our, the abundance and the affluence that we have. And so this law of habituation uh, is invoked here. You don't, but, but we human beings don't have to be enslaved by that, and yet most of us, I, again, in, in general, are. You know, adaptation to satisfaction can be counteracted by changing the way that we look at these things, and we human beings don't often give in to such change because we get used to what we have, and we do, whether it's in this country or, or, or wherever it might be. And, and, uh, and again, if we are aware of how fortunate our condition is, you don't have to take three or four steps down from your current abundance necessarily to appreciate how fortunate you are to have what you have. And we're talking about physical things at this moment. I understand that. It's not someone else reminding you of that, but you being aware of and being grateful for the things that you have. That's possible, but it does take work. Like anything else that's good, it takes effort to do what I'm talking about and to do what this book was reflecting. It continues on. If a person's attention is constantly devoted to the things they do not have, and boy, is that true now in the weeks leading up to Christmas, you're going to see more and more things on TV, you know, uh, uh, about what you may want to consider getting your, your special loved one for, you know, for, for Christmas. Uh, I was pretty amazed a couple of years ago when, you know, when, when they had this, you know, the young, this young couple, and, uh, you know, he comes out and, and it gives his wife, he has come out to the front, and there's this beautiful, you know, SUV, ruby red SUV, brand new, all wrapped up in a bow, you know, and he's so grateful to give his wife that, and she does him one up, you know, she, she comes over here and she gives him this, uh, you know, this, uh, 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 four-wheel drive pickup truck that out with all the bells and whistles on it you know each of these vehicles are probably 50 grand or more and uh, and that's on television you know when most of us are watching this and the average American probably isn't going to do that but that kind of plays to where we are in this country and in the issue of uh, things we don't have that we want and uh, uh, and of course this time of year the irony in my way of looking at it is that on Thanksgiving Day when you consider and, and take a read of what Abraham Lincoln wrote on October the 3rd, 1863, in advance of what would be the first national Thanksgiving, and you read what he wrote, there's such a contrast between, you know, between that and Black Friday and, and all of the things that we Americans uh, are doing to buy gifts for ourselves or for loved ones and all the things that are going on. There's such a, uh, it would give you whiplash if nothing else. But if a person's attention is constantly devoted to things they don't have, they will be unlikely to focus on appreciating the blessings that they do have. Kind of reminds me of a, uh, of a, of a story of a, 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 an instructor in uh, a college class, and, uh, and all the class thought that they were going to get a, a, a test that day or a quiz. And so they're kind of geared up for it. And he handed out the, 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 the paper to everyone. And it and on one side, both sides were blank except on one small section of one side of the eight and a half by 11 white sheet of paper was a black dot, a black circle all, all colored in. And, and these students didn't know what to think of it. And, uh, and he said, you, I want you to write, you know, a paragraph on what you see on this paper. He wouldn't answer any other questions. And so, you know, they, they dutifully churned out their paragraph and turned it in, and he, he read them in front of everybody. And most of the paragraphs were this detailed explanation of a black dot in the southwest corner, you know, two inches from the left and, right, you know, <laughs> an inch from the bottom. It was a description of the black dot. And, of course, he made the point with them, and it makes this point, I think, quite well, is that we tend to focus on the dark dot and not all the bright light of the other things, you know. And he, he used that to make the point that we human beings tend to do that about life often, rather than looking at the things that are good and, and, and that, that the light shines on in a positive way. 
Research has shown that grateful people are less likely to be based their happiness on material possessions. As someone told me once, uh, they don't hurt much having material possessions, but grateful people don't rely upon that. Uh, they are less envious of others, and they're less likely to measure success in terms of material gain, in fact. And when you think about those three points alone, people, let's just assume for a moment that everyone in this country, the United States of America, they didn't base their happiness on material possessions. No one did. I know that's, that would be a miracle, but let's just assume that's the case. And that envy that people had, whether envy of people or envy of what people had, plummeted. And that people did no longer measure their success in terms of material gain. How would that change our society if that were true of everyone? I mean, you think about the impacts of that in business, in relationships, uh, within families, between countries. Of course, in this case, I've asked you to just consider it for this country alone. It seems unlikable, un un unlikely, and I know that. A more recent book entitled The Gratitude Project, which was just published last year, it as well contains articles and essays from research and neuroscience about the subject of gratitude. And uh, of course, in showing the potential impact that gratitude can have on society, so this is, be mindful of this, it, some of what I'm going to read to you is, is kind of the conclusions that many uh, social scientists are coming to about their understanding of appreciation, of thankfulness and gratitude uh, in, in human society after having studied it for 20 or 25 years. And here's what they say. Gratitude is one of the most scientifically backed practices in positive psychology. Now, positive psychology is a buzzword that the APA picked up on several years ago as a type of uh, a psychological research. It's positive stuff. And so, as this says here, it's one of the most scientifically backed practices in that arena. It may not be able to solve every personal problem. However, we do know that it's orients our brains towards the positive and the social. Those nourishing resources that already exist around us, we know that it helps combat the brain's tendency to focus on the negative and get used to good things. And it might just cause, it might, excuse me, it might just change the lens through which we see the world, transforming our health and well-being in the process. So, you know, as we think about this subject of ingratitude versus true thankfulness, and you look at it from a biblical perspective, it's probably one of the most often overlooked characteristics in God's word that instructs us human beings and even gives us fair warning and admonishes us about. So what can we do as Christians to be more thankful? What can we change to become a person of sincere gratitude, the way that we live our life and our relationship with God. First point, and these are all connected, by the way. These points are all related. You may say they all kind of blend into one. And they do in some respects. But the first one is give gratitude and thankfulness the time it deserves. In other words, think about it. There was a song in the uh, original hymnal that I experienced when I first came into what was then the Radio Church of God, and it was entitled Count Your Blessings. And some of you know that, that hymn quite well. I'm not going to sing it for you. You would be glad that I made that decision. <laughs> but but uh, the, the point being is that you know, a person needs to just take the time to start thinking about the things that they have that they're grateful for. You know, there's a phrase that I heard years ago when I probably was a young boy when I first heard it or a form of it, and that is you don't know what you've got until they're gone. How many of you have heard a phrase like that or akin to that in your life? We, sure we have. We have. You don't know what you've got until it's gone. You know, as I look back over my life in the last couple of days, I've looked at this, I I remember a number of occasions where this was absolutely true in my own life. I remember the first time I went off to summer camp. Now, the first time was actually when I was a Boy Scout, and I went for two weeks. 
Now, the Boy Scouts, they, they kind of prepare you for this, this uh, going off uh, for two weeks, and it was only about 45 minutes from my home, so it wasn't as if I was going to the other side of the state or the other side of the, the nation. But, but uh, you know, it, it, it was... But they, they took care of us pretty well, Boy Scout camp. But I found myself uh, missing some of the regular stuff I had at home, even though I didn't want to fancy myself as a, as a wimp going off to camp. But then some months later, when we came into the church and I went off to the church's summer camp, and I was gone for seven weeks. Um, and again, it was a great experience. Uh, at age 14, a great experience. I will never forget it, and it had an impact upon me, which never left me. But I'll have to admit that I did miss some of the, uh, uh, the continuity of, of, of our home and, and, and my mom making breakfast and, uh, and some of the things that, that were, made life comfortable. Um, it wasn't a, 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 you know, an earth-shattering event, leaving and going to camp for seven weeks. As I said, it was a great experience. But I remember the feeling that way. Did I, cry, did I cry and call home because I... No, I didn't do that. Even if I felt that, I wouldn't... I was too vain and proud as a 14-year-old to let that happen. But I did miss being home. I did. I did miss some of the things that you had at home regularly. We had a pretty decent lifestyle at home. It was lower middle class, but we had warm meals in the morning. And we, uh, there was regularity with, with, uh, you know, with the things, the chores and stuff around the house. And we got along. And, uh, and again, going off to camp in 1966 for seven weeks was a great experience. But I remember appreciating when I came home, when I came home, I appreciated um, what I had at home more than before. So it was a small lesson in this point of you don't really appreciate something until it's gone. Um, when I left home for college, that was some few, what, three or four years later. And I didn't, I wasn't leaving for a week or, I mean, I left home and it was gone. And never to live home for more than maybe a few months one summer again. And when that happened, of course, I left and went from Michigan all the way to uh, Southern California. Uh, no more of my mom's cooking every morning. Uh, it was a dormitory uh, a lifestyle and no familiar surroundings. I mean, I grew up with two older brothers, so it wasn't as if that was an alien situation of living with other guys. But it, the, the comfort uh, that, I, that was gone uh, was something I missed. And, uh, and I remember it. Was it life-changing and you know, earth-shattering to me? No. No, but, but I really did, and when I finally uh, went home to visit uh, once a year, uh, I in thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, the cooking in the, uh, you know, at, at college was okay. You know, it was all right. It wasn't as if we starved or anything like that, but there's nothing like mom's cooking. And I appreciated that. In the one summer that I actually went home and worked, I appreciated it a lot. I actually was foolish enough to turn down the opportunity to go to the dig in Israel so I could go home and work and make money. And... Uh, and eat my mom's cooking for the summer. Um, and it was. I remember in 1995 when the church that I was a part of ceased to teach what it did, and I resigned. And uh, it, it, there was a, a job change, which meant none for a while, uh, and there was a cultural shift, and oh, I'm describing something many of you dealt with. But like a lot of things, it, this had to do with my core beliefs in appreciating the opportunity to worship God in a particular way because of what it focused me on as, a, as an individual, as a Christian. And that changed, and I became to appreciate what I knew and what I understood so much more. I thought I did before, but when it was gone and I had no, we had no place to go for a short while, for some few months to... Uh, to keep the feast in particular, but that all, that all uh, changed in time. And then some years later, even though I had been married then at this point in time for, what, almost 25 years or, or so, when my mother died, you know, I hadn't lived at home. I, I actually uh, married a, a gal that was a good cook, a great cook, and Tanya and my mom were, were really close buddies. That doesn't always happen with your mother-in-law, but... Uh, it, it, it happened in our case. My, my, my wife and, and my mom were very good friends, and uh, they really did get along well. And there was more laughter in the house when my mom came to visit than at any other time. And a lot of good food, I may add. It came back to the food issue. That was uh, one of my many weak spots. And, and, uh, and our kids, you know, loved it when Grandma Horchak was able to come and spend time with them. Uh, 
Um, but when she died in 1999, there was no more visits from Grandma, no more cooking, no more laughter that came from her or generated from her presence. And, uh, you know, like, like many of you in this room who have had parents, my father died some, what, six years ago now as well, but you, 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 uh, you learn to appreciate what you had more when they're gone, even if it's temporary, as it was early on when I went to camp. But each one of those experiences helped me, at least for a while, to value that which I lost. Now, there's a phrase that, that they say that the phrase, people, you don't know what you've had until you've lost it, that it's not the complete phrase. The total phrase is people say you don't know what you have until it's gone, but the truth is you knew what you had, you just never thought you'd lose it. You never really thought you'd lose it. And that was particularly true when I was younger. You know, you kind of think that some of this good stuff that you have, these things you experience are going to go on and go on forever. And, but life does change. And that entitlement mentality, and what I mean by that is, you, you know, it's, it's, it's part of what we have, it's part of what we enjoy. And, and you know, it's, that's my baseline. We fail to deeply appreciate sometimes what we do have. And that's particularly true with younger people. I, I, I speak to that because I know myself, as I, when I was younger, I thought more that way. And, uh, you know, when you're a teenager and your parents are trying to encourage you to appreciate things now, uh, sometimes it can just be words, sometimes. Um, and it, usually it takes some experience in a young person's life for them to be jolted into realizing just how, how much they really do have. You know, whether it's the relationships within their family, whether it's the... Uh, the physical things that enable them to have food and shelter and clothing and an education and even the church. But you know, setting aside time daily to recall things that we're grateful for actually helps all of us to weave that into the fabric of our lives because that's the only way that the subject of gratitude and thankfulness is going to be of real value to any of us in the long run. So how is that done, though? You know, is it, is it really just making a list? You know, people do it different ways. Some may take notes. Somebody have a, some people have a journal. But, you know, the important thing is having a daily regimen. The act of writing things down, translating thoughts into words... And, of course, I, I, I would suggest, particularly to young people or anybody here, don't, don't repeat every day. If you're going to have this, this gratitude journal, don't repeat every day, I'm thankful for my dog, I'm thankful for my car, and I'm thankful for my bed. And then on Tuesday, I'm thankful for my dog, I'm thankful for my car, I'm thankful for my bed. Um, you may be thankful for those things, but what we're talking about is drilling down more than those obvious things that may be on your mind. I'd like you to turn to Luke 18, if you would. Luke chapter 18. And see if we can see a contrast here uh, in these two individuals that are referred to by Jesus Christ in this example. Luke 18, verse 11. You all know this, this, uh, this occasion well about the Pharisee and the publican. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And I think it's pretty telling, even that phrase. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this publican. You know, this was a very self-centered gratitude or thankfulness that had nothing to do with what we're talking about, really. But then the next example here in verse 12, or excuse me, in verse 13. Verse 12, he continues on, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. Verse 13, and the publican standing afar off. And notice every word here that is, is here in the scripture to describe this publican. He's standing afar off. And what's the next phrase? Would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven. Now what does it say about that individual compared to the previous one? But he smote his breast saying, and what, what does he say here? God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, you may say, well, what does this have to do with gratitude? Well, it has everything to do with it. There's an understanding of where one really is in verse 13. There's an understanding of the gift of mercy and, and, and uh, 
and the grace of God uh, in one's life. The publican knew he was grateful for life, forgiveness, for mercy. The other did not. Second point, make gratitude a central component to your prayer life. Make gratitude a central component to your prayer life. I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And of course, this is another one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the brethren at Philippi. And uh, clearly by what we read in in Philippians, we know that this was a, a group of brethren that uh, maybe unlike what we find in 1 Corinthians, this is a group of people that, that uh, had a lot of things positively going for them as a collective group in terms of their focus on, uh, on one another, uh, and, and Paul was encouraging to them. <clears throat> Notice what he said here near the end of the letter in Philippians 4 and verse, verse 6. So he's starting to wrap this letter up, and he encourages them. He says, be anxious for nothing. Now that's, again, it's easier said than done, but he goes on to give them some positive things to do to address this, this, this uh, anxiousness that we can have sometimes in life, left to itself. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here you find Paul actually encouraging the church to have their prayers, their communication with God, laced with thanksgiving, that that's the prism through which or the sieve through which those, uh, that, that communication goes through when we talk to God. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, the result of that, he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And when you think about it, he's talking about, if we can use this term without misunderstanding my intent, God talks about our ability to have good mental health by living a life of gratitude and appreciation. Now, this isn't a psychology uh, statement here, but he does talk about what here in verse 7? Peace of God, surpassing understanding, guarding our hearts and minds. One will eventually produce the other. Thanking God for the unique aspects of our lives, the opportunities. Whittling it down to details that sometimes we can overlook if we treat this too much as a surface assignment, so to speak. Well, okay, I'll I'll, I'll list, you know, the five things I really am appreciative of on Tuesday, and that'll be the end of my effort to live a life of gratitude. Now, whittling it down to details because God promises a peace of mind that, as he states here, surpasses human understanding because it's directed towards God. Each day, each day, every day, each prayer, take time to address the gratitude of your calling of when God started working in your life and the direction you're going and how that's changed. Last year, the year of 2020, would have been uh, my 50th high school reunion. And uh, like probably many of you, I had uh, friends from the past that uh, reached out to me some years before, actually the 25th as well. And so with the advent of uh, social media, you find yourself a little bit connected. In my case, I wasn't inextricably linked to a bunch of uh, my high school graduating class, but a few of them did. And, and, uh, and of course, uh, leading up to that, Tanya said, you know, I'd really like to go back to Detroit, really like to go back and, and, and you know, and get a chance to, to, uh, to go to the reunion. And, and I said, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do that. And it wasn't something that I was determined to do, but I thought, well, let, let's give it a go. Well, it was in 2020. Uh, it was canceled uh, because of COVID. Uh, you know, it would have been in uh, August of uh, last year. And so early on, they, 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 they did. But, but leading up to that, you know, be, between Facebook posts and a few emails that I received and, uh, and people kind of sharing where they are in life and some people reaching out to me and, um, you know, some of them knew for the last 15 or 20 years what I was doing and that alone was a shock to them <laughs> as, I, as 
I think uh, you understand. But, you know, and when, you, when you do that, though, you begin to see some things about where some of these other people are. I mean, I had a few phone calls, a few conversations some years ago with a few of them, and, and I guess leading up to this, this potential of going to my 50th high school reunion, I made a conscious decision probably less than a year out during the time when I prayed in the morning and I, asked, I would ask myself, I didn't do it every day, but I did it quite regularly. Where would I be had I not left Warren, Michigan after I graduated from Warren High School in 1970? Where would I be in my life had I not gone off to college in Pasadena, California, at Ambassador College, but went to school locally, which was an option? Where would I be if had I remained in the social world of some of these individuals that 30 and 40 years, 50 years later, I began to see where they were? And some of them, you know, seemed to have a pretty uh, successful, uh, happy life. Well, that's the foot they put forward, and that's kind of the way it is. Others, not so much. Where would I be? And I didn't just ask the question. I, I thought about it. And you, all of you kind of can understand this and appreciate it. Those of you who have a year or two under your belt, you know that you think back and some of the people that you knew and the friends that you had, and not that it was all bad, but you knew that you wouldn't be where you are now. You wouldn't be there at all. And it caused me to, uh, it was pretty sobering, as a matter of fact, at times. Because that calling that I got from God and all that it meant for the, the next 50 years would have gone a very different direction. The truth that gave my life purpose, not unlike your lives, purpose and direction. Whether I ended up in the ministry or not is irrelevant to the point I'm making, in my mind. It's irrelevant. What is relevant is God's calling, God's Holy Spirit, and the understanding that I had as a young man and then as I grew older that affected my decisions And the end, the opportunity to serve God and his work and his people. And then as I, you know, again, leading up to what would have been the year of my 50th high school reunion, and of course, the, the chaos that increased over the last year or two, that amidst that chaos of 2020, and it continues in 2021, I would add, that the view that I'm able to have, and it isn't a perfect one, there's more for me to understand about this world and about God's truth and to see the world and the chaos that we're going through, through those lens, but, but the view of this world and life in the future that I have as a result of not going, not staying in that world that I was in 50 years ago. I mean, it, 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 it's remarkable. Again, I, I'm sharing with all of you something that many of you have probably done yourselves. And sometimes that happens when you get a, an email from or a phone call from or an instant message from a somebody you haven't seen in 50 years from high school and they're telling you about themselves and uh, you know, again some of those stories are, are, are maybe good in that sense and others just off the wall and you realize how fortunate you are how fortunate you are weave gratitude and thankfulness into your prayer life every day but you have to make a conscious choice to do that. Now, last point I want to make. And again, as I said, these things are all linked. Make gratitude a way of thinking, a way of living, not, not an event. <laughs> not, not a motivation as a result of a sermonette or an article that you read. Or I mean, you, you can start thinking about it more, but it, it needs to be a part of the way that we think. A part of the way that we think. Philippians chapter 4. Also, you know, we read from Philippians 4 just a few moments ago, but it's interesting uh, when you think about it. Um, so, you know, earlier we, we read a few moments ago about how having our prayers really laced with thanksgiving. And then we find this comment that, that Paul makes in verse 8 of Philippians, chapter, uh, Philippians 4 and verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, and I found, I think back to when I first read this, and exposed to these words of the Apostle Paul, I thought it, it, these words seem a little bit naive. Now let me read through this and, and maybe you might be able to understand from a carnal perspective because that's how I initially looked at this, uh, why I may have thought that. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, 
Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, and whatsoever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate, think about these things. Now, Paul's talking about making a conscious choice to focus on the positive, good, uplifting, edifying things in life. Are there things that aren't so? Yes. And the scripture does give us ample uh, instruction and encouragement on how to respond and deal with those. And sometimes they're pretty tough. But he, he, give, he gives us an admonition. He, and I say, you know, years ago, and again, I don't know when it was, it was probably in my teenage years, I thought, well, this seems a little bit naive that you're just going to think about these things. He doesn't say that that's what you're going to do 24-7. But if you're going to think and meditate, if you're going to have something be the baseline of the way that you view life, your experiences, think on these things, meditate on these things. Make it your frame of mind is what he's saying. And you've got to make it a habit if it's going to work, if it's going to change anything. Notice in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3. Here we find uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossae. And uh, again, he, he talks about this issue of being thankful. And you'll notice that virtually all of these occasions when Paul talks about being thankful, he's not, he's not usually talking about being thankful for a particular event and a particular issue. Uh, th that may be true on a few occasions, but he talks about a broader perspective on life and the way that we think. Notice verse 15 of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you are called in one body. And be you thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, now this is a very specific instruction, whatever you do, whatever you speak, whatever you act upon and do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. You know, for this to happen, again, and I'm talking about the phrase of where he says, whatsoever you do in word or deed, all of those things need to be things we think about and that are on our mind daily. I would submit to all of us that for if our minds are not one and our focus is not one primarily of gratitude at this point, and I'm not one to judge um, to whom that may be or with whom that may be true. I know most of you, and I think my experience is that most everybody I know, at least at times, have been thankful and, 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 and people have expressed gratitude in the way that they live their lives. But these are things that are only going to be of value to us from a spiritual perspective if we make it a part of who we are. And from the various earliest days of God's servants developing a relationship with their creator, thanksgiving and gratefulness proved central to it from the very earliest days. You go back to the book of Genesis and there was a sacrifice. One was accepted and one was not. And when you read what it says in Hebrews 11 about Cain and Abel, we have every reason to believe that one had to do with an attitude towards his creator. Abel appreciated. It, it, it's there all the way through it. Psalm 100. We know that many of the Psalms of David and the other Psalms are replete with examples of gratitude and thankfulness, but Psalm 100 is one of the best. It's one of the more focused that I think is important for us to consider. Psalm 100, verse 1. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know you that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. 
and into his courts with praise, and be thankful unto him, and bless his name, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures for all generations. You know, brethren, as we look to the future, and that's something that is sure, it's coming, and it's important, I think, that whenever we speak about such things as that can seem so mundane as gratitude and thankfulness that we consider the future, our own future, and the future of the world that we are in and the age that we are in. The book I referred to, the latest one called The Gratitude Project, which was just published some months ago, towards the end of the book, the last chapter is entitled, Is Gratitude the Path to a Better World? Let me read this quote. Violence springs from the root of fear. Fear that there may not be enough for all, fear of others as potential competitors, fear of foreigners and strangers. But the grateful person is fearless. Thereby he cuts off the very root of violence. Out of a sense of enough, he is willing to share and thereby tends to eliminate the unjust distribution of wealth that creates the climate for violence. Fearlessly, he welcomes the new and the strange, finds himself enriched by different views. Thus, grateful living takes away the main reasons for exploitation, oppression, and violence. Through sharing, universal respect, and nonviolence, it proves the basis for a healthy society and a world. A world with a chance to survive. Now, I realize that a few of the words in this phrase um, that I just read smacks of a different worldview than we may have. But the issue of a change in the human heart is central to what they say at the end of this book. When I read, read, read this, really is the last paragraph in the book, I thought basically what they're asking for, what they're, what they're putting forward is a miracle. A miracle that isn't going to happen on its own. Is not going to happen because of a book that's published that made no mention, by the way, of God, except that God may be an entity that somebody may look to. Mankind realizes something has to change within us as human beings if we are to have a chance to survive. People know that. They understand. In Jeremiah chapter 30, we see evidence of gratitude during the millennium. After Jesus Christ returned to this earth, after this age that we're currently in, this present evil age, has ended and that new age has begun, we see in Jeremiah chapter 30 evidence of gratitude and for good reason. Notice Jeremiah 30 and verse 10. Jeremiah 30 and verse 10. Therefore, do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. And verse 18, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tent. So God's talking about a time in the future when, when Israel, and I'm not, we're not talking about the nation of Israel there in the Middle East right now, we're talking about all of what is entailed in the 12 tribes of Israel. They are scattered throughout this world and even in Europe and in this country, that they will be brought back. And have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be built upon its own mound, and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them, and they shall not diminish. I will glorify them, and they shall not be small. God is talking about here something that motivates God from everything we read in the scripture almost more than anything else, a desire to restore people to the life that he intended them to have of bringing many sons to glory yes he starts with israel but it, it eventually reaches the, the whole world so what we find being referred to here this is the outcome of god's way being embraced by people who heretofore before that did not understand it and when they understand the truth of god when they understand the purpose for human life they're grateful we don't often think about the gratitude that's going to exist in the world tomorrow at the beginning of the millennium. But based on what we read here, I firmly believe that there will be millions of people that when they come to see what they have now, 
not the loss that they've just experienced, which will be great when they come to see that this, there really is hope, that there really is light, and they're going to be grateful. They're going to be voices that make merry and are joyous. God speaks about a time when joy and gladness will be found in Israel and a restoration of all things, including the acknowledgement, the deep gratitude of those who serve God. God's word tells us that a lack of thankfulness darkened the hearts of man and that the thankful and grateful heart in man will enable him to experience joy and gladness and witness knowing the true God. I want to end by reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and this was a very significant time in the history of Israel. God revealed to David, and no doubt disappointed David, that it wouldn't be he, David, that would actually build the temple or the house for God, but it would be Solomon, his son. David accepted this decision and both encouraged Solomon in his responsibilities that he had ahead of him. David encouraged all of Israel to give generously to the effort of building the temple. And we know that the nation of Israel at that time did give generously of their substance to build this house for God, to do the work of God as they understood it. But notice, as we read through these few verses, a great and deep expression of gratitude and thankfulness for even being able to be involved in such a work that David expressed to God in this prayer. And as we read through these few verses, brethren, I'd like all of us to consider what he's saying and whether or not there's a deep lesson for us today as we are engaged in building the spiritual house that we're blessed to have a part in being a part of and to help to build to do its work as well. First Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 10. First Chronicles 29, verse 10. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all, and your hand is power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as we are all fathers. Our days on this earth are as a shadow, and there is nothing abiding or none abiding. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name comes from you, and it is all your own. I also, my God, that I know also, my God, that you try the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things, and now have I seen the joy of your people, which are present here to offer willingly unto you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of your thoughts of the heart of your people, and prepare their heart unto you. You know, as we draw this message to a close, there's three one-liners that I picked up along the way that I want to share with you. Appreciate what you have before it becomes what you had. Someone else is happier with less than what you have. And don't take things for granted because they might not be there tomorrow. Gratitude and thankfulness is not something you can command a person to do. You can tell little Johnny to say thank you. You can tell little Sally to say thank you. But gratitude and thankfulness is not something you can just command a person to do. It's internal. It defines the way that a person looks at life. In this world that we live in, brethren, there are those that do not understand. Sadly, they don't know how to view life through those lens. But brethren, let that not be true of those of us in the church. 
Two people can live in the same house, eat the same food, breathe the same air, attend the same church, be convicted about the same fundamental teachings, can wear the same clothes, drive the same roads, hear the same sermons, and read the same chapters in Scripture. And yet those same two people can have a distinctly and powerfully different view of life and the world. They can have a dramatically different experience and perspective on their lives and a very different level of happiness and purpose and can experience a very different outcome of success in their pursuit of their calling. Based to a great degree on whether or not they have a mind defined by sincere appreciation of the good things, that they have an approach to life of thankfulness, and whether or not they have a relationship with their God and Creator, a relationship that is based on a deep and sincere gratitude for life, their purpose, and their calling. 